1: 630 Chad. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins, weekdays at 6
2: on 630 Chad. Drop
1: pass, Dreisler and McDavid, down the middle, wrist shot, goal!
0: Carter McDavid, just like that! Smith, three,
2: clubbing right!
1: home for breaking news on your favorite teams. This is Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins, brought to you by Cam LLP Injury Lawyers, representing injured people in Edmonton and across Alberta since
2: 1962. On 6:30, CAM.
1: Certainly, a different Labor Day this year as we ride out. The pandemic, and for fans of the Canadian Football League and the Edmonton football team, another layer of unusualness added on to that. No Labor Day Classic. No game in Calgary between Edmonton and the Stampeders. One of the greatest rivalries in sports. We do not get to enjoy it today. It has gone Calgary's way the last few years, but uh, man, certainly feels different not coming on after that game to break it down and bring you some other sports stories. But we do have a best of edition of Inside Sports tonight. Hope you've had a great long weekend. My name is Reed Wilkins. Thanks a lot for tuning in and we'll bring you some of our favorite interviews from the last few weeks here on Inside Sports. We've had a lot of great stories. Uh, This story is one of triumph and also one of sadness. It was 40 years ago last week in 1980 that the great Terry Fox made this announcement. Yesterday I was running, and I had noticed a little bit of hardness in breathing. And
0: near the end of the day, 18 miles, um, I was coughing and choking and had pain in my neck and my chest. And I did three more miles, and I I decided I had to go see the doctor and it was discovered then that uh i had primary originally I had primary cancer in my knee three and a half years ago and uh that the cancer had spread and now i've got cancer in my lungs and uh we've got to go home and and try and do some more treatment but
1: Says, uh, there's any way I can get out there again and finish it I will. And we reflect on that with Leslie Scrivener who wrote a book about Terry Fox. It came out in 1981 and in 1980 she was working for the Toronto Star and was assigned to cover Terry Fox in his Marathon of Hope.
3: My editor said there's a, there's a young man who's running across Canada on one leg find out if he's for real and when the uh, Toronto Star switchboard operators tracked him down and come by chance Newfoundland you know you know our operators were so great they just called all over until they found him we didn't know where he was and when I heard that voice so young so hopeful so happy to communicate his story I was a believer and, you, you, know, you know, in journalism, we're supposed to be um, objective, detached, but with Terry Fox, it was impossible because he was so authentic. Um, he was so, all of the wonderful things we've written about him are true. He was a, I, I think he was good in his bones and that was transmitted in the way he spoke. So simply, so naturally. And you know, I I believed, as did so many, that um, I would see Terry dip his foot in at English Bay in Vancouver, and we would all celebrate this tremendous, tremendous athletic and humanitarian accomplishment.
1: So, when you first got to meet him in, in person, then he, he was he was on the road. It was he, the marathon was going on.
3: Yeah, and they'd had a few rough months uh, through the Maritimes and in Quebec. And um, Bill Vickers, who was working for the Cancer Society, said, we've got to make a big splash in Ontario. So I first saw Terry just as he was crossing the border from Quebec into Ontario. And I've got to tell you, he looked like the loneliest man in Canada. his stature, even though he was, you know, average or above average in height, he looked. At it. There was this smallness of youth. The, you know, the, the the stature. Everything seemed shrunk by, you know, the vastness of our country. One small, one young man running across this vast country, and I, I was just so overcome by his uh, the enormity of his task. Um when I finally got to talk to him, I, of course I encountered this very sweet-natured, um as I said earlier, natural, friendly, um just absolutely lovely human being. That's not to say he wasn't without flaws. He was not he was um he was a A full human being with all the great things and the shortcomings.
1: I'm wondering, and I apologize if this sounds like kind of an odd question, but I think you'll understand where I'm coming from. Did he really grasp the gravity and the magnitude of what he was doing, running across the... I mean, obviously he knew it was a big deal, but I mean, like, that's...
3: Yeah, I understand because, you know, at first it was, you know, just the sheer, first of all, it was the um, the drive to help others, to help cancer patients. He'd seen so much suffering that drove him. He was an athlete. He identified as an athlete. Um, so there was the uh, the, the physical uh, strength and skill needed to get himself across. He had he had both of those right from the start. Um he always described it as an adventure, but I think as he came through Ontario, where people and he saw that people were now lining up on the road to wait to see him and to contribute money to the um, to the marathon of hope uh, for cancer research. As he saw that, something deepened in him it was more than an athletic and humanitarian endeavor it was something that was um that he was drawing in all canadians all of us were becoming part of this um and that i think that deepened and deepened his understanding um there's a new book out that just came out this week called forever Terry, and in it doug allward his faithful friend says um at the end of his contribution to this to this book he says terry was willing to die he was convinced terry was willing to die to save others and i think the enormity of that became clear here here in ontario as he as as people gathered around him and that's when he said even if i don't make it which is an unusual thing for an athlete to say even if i don't make it has got to keep going without me
1: yeah that's amazing sorry Leslie
3: no and I I often wondered uh, uh, you know your question is an excellent question because I wondered did he actually know that he could lose his life doing this and if he did that certainly didn't inhibit him from taking one you know from giving everything that was in his bones and in his body and in his heart
1: You mentioned that you know he just so badly wanted to help other people do you think he would have believed that 40 years later, and obviously beyond, Canadians would still be talking about him and inspired by him, or do you think he was so focused on reaching the West Coast for a finish line that maybe he didn't think about a long-term impact?
3: You know, Terry was such an innocent young man, Um, and he was almost without... Ego. He had no pride. When I say he didn't have pride, he didn't. He didn't think. I don't think he realized how outstanding he was. He was such a modest person. What was important is that the um, that his message that we can all contribute, uh, we can all work together to beat this monstrous disease. I think, I think he may have hoped that. Um, would he have, because he was such a modest person, would he have really believed that there would be millions of people around the world, and I mean around the world, from Abu Dhabi to Cuba, running and Terry Fox runs? I don't think he would have anticipated that. And, you know, in Cuba, sometimes a million people would go out to run for Terry Fox. A million.
1: Wow. That's, yeah, that's and I, should, and I should get this in here, uh, Leslie, while I can. Uh, the virtual run this year, Sunday, September 20th, TerryFox.org, One Day Your Way, uh, honor Terry Fox in, in your own way. So I want people to remember that. Leslie Scrivener is joining us on Inside Sports. Terry Fox, his story um, is the book. So when you were assigned, and this was the Toronto Star at the time, right? That's right. Well, did you stay out on the road or did you go out and check in periodically? How did your yeah. assignment work?
3: yeah i would i would check in periodically so we were in touch um every week at least once or twice a week um, until he got to ontario and then i'd make um i spent a few days with him on the road when he came in and that was just a tremendous you know almost life-changing life-affirming experience and then as he got closer to ontario i'd I'd, um, you know, drop in. One day he was bleeding horribly, and the star thought, oh, this is the end, and I raced up to um, the the holiday area around here, Cottage Country, uh, near Gravenhurst, and he just about laughed me out of the room. He said, are you kidding me? He said, if if I had to stop every time I have a, a blister or I'm bleeding, I wouldn't get anywhere. So blood running down his leg was no big deal. So, um, yes, I would. I would pop in. I would pop in and out to see him. And um, I, I got to tell you, it's. Just, I can see these things now. I'm sitting here in Toronto. I can see them as clearly as if they're happening in front of me now.
1: Yeah, Leslie, do you remember the last time you talked to him?
3: I do. Um, it was Christmas um the, uh, a couple months before he died and i was um interviewing him at his home in Port Coquitlam at his family's home and you know this robustly healthy beautiful sun tanned you know sunburned young man had um shrunk uh, in, st- in so- physical size he was very thin he moved slowly his skin was pale um and it was a christmas and um his mom and his family invited me to to join them on one of their uh for a, you know a social evening at home and the last time i saw terry he um he quietly left the gathering and walked down the hall to his bedroom and it was just like a little kid you know going off to bed pulling his sweater up over his shoulders and his head into the bedroom and I closed the door and that was it yeah, um, and for, you know, for for a boy, a young man with such um, you know physical strength and um, so much power in him, um, this must have been very, very hard.
1: Leslie, thanks for for sharing that. And uh, you know, listeners are, are writing in here. Derek just texted, and he says, "For anyone who's ever wondered what true grit is, look no further than Terry Fox. His grit and tenacity knew no bounds. He was the true embodiment of what every Canadian should be." And I mean, he's he, to me, he is in his own category, and I was talking about this last night, and as a sportscaster, people want me to to rank this and rank that on the greatest Canadian and the greatest athlete, and what he was doing was an athletic achievement. I mean, just running a marathon a day, even if you haven't had an amputation, is incredible. And what what he was doing and why he was doing it. So I I can't look at it as just an athletic feat either. I mean, it probably is the greatest athletic achievement in Canadian history, but it's so much more than that.
3: It is. Isn't it interesting with these uh, these deep layers of meaning on top of this outstanding athletic um, accomplishment? I mean, there, I was just reading today about a marathon runner who said about Terry, she said, nobody, nobody runs 300 kilometers a week. And just think of all the marathon runners we know. What do they do? One, two, three, five in a lifetime?
1: Yeah. Yeah, It's it, it's it's amazing. And, and I,
3: and that was important to him you know he won the lou marsh award and um he wanted that i mean he was very modest and didn't want much in life but he did want to be recognized as an athlete but you know but as they say the depth and the complexity and the humanitarian aspect of giving to others layered on top of that
1: yeah, well said. Um, your book, uh, Terry Fox, uh, his story, uh, still uh, widely read and widely published. And available? Wait, did, did, it, did it come out in eighty one, or when did it first come out?
3: Yeah, it came out. Terry died in June. I think June was it, July, and it came out just shortly after that. Yeah, um, and that was, you know, gosh. I mean, I just thought that's just yeah. He died on June twenty eighth and um the book came out just probably a couple weeks later but you know he was so ill we would talk on the phone and he was so ill toward the end you know i I asked him to take a look at it and what did he think and you know he was just so far past caring about the words and you know it was you know his life was in the balance
1: you know there are statues of Terry around the country streets and and schools and things like that named after him it's funny, Leslie, and somebody just texted in about this as well, and I was talking to a couple other people earlier today and said, why do we not have Terry Fox on money like is that the <laughs> i don't know oh, if that's the ultimate so way
3: yeah yeah, but there is a, a movement that he be considered I think someone might have to correct me on this uh, on the new is it the five dollar bill his name has been put forward. Oh good um, um, but I, I don't I don't I don't know where that stands. but wouldn't okay. that be great Just, uh, I mean he's on the looney though already. He was on a commemorative looney
1: right but yes but he's not on a permanent like
3: he's not on a bill.
1: Not on a bill, right? Uh, yeah, Terry Fox's uh, story from February pushing to be him on the five dollar bill. Well, I there should be some, yeah. something like that where everybody sees him on a daily basis. I think that would be appropriate.
3: Well, you know, here it's uh, in Toronto at Pearson Airport when you come when you come in, they have these big po- welcoming people from um, abroad. Um, there's a giant, giant picture of Terry. And I thought, what a terrific welcome um, to the visitors and newcomers to Canada. And what a statement that he is one of our great ones.
1: Well said. Leslie, I I wish we had a little more time. Uh, Maybe we can talk again. But I I, I just uh, so appreciate uh, you coming on with your your memories and and talking about Terry Fox. Um, Just an incredible Canadian. Words don't do him justice. Your book, Terry Fox, His Story. Thank you so much for checking in tonight.
3: Such a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for calling.
1: Man, that's great to catch up with Leslie Scrivener, Terry Fox, his story.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
1: A book you can still find came out in 1981. Really appreciate her perspective. It's the best of inside sports on 630 Chat. Well, we have a lot of cool conversations to come tonight. It's the best of inside sports. My name is Reed Wilkins. Appreciate you checking out the show. We'll be back with a uh, live show tomorrow. Later on in the week, we'll get into live play by play of the NHL Conference Finals Series. Still to come, Mark Cohan, former commissioner of the Canadian Football League. You'll hear from Edmonton's Manny Viveros, now the head coach of the Henderson Silver Knights in the American Hockey League and one of the all-time greats in curling. Well, the greatest. Let's just call him the greatest. Kevin Martin will reflect on one of the biggest innovations in the game from the past several years. Also, a really cool conversation with Amanda Romery an Edmonton. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
3: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: ...who's now the top female Paralympic sprinter in Canada. All to come. Best of Inside Sports on 630 Chat. On August 17th, the 2020 CFL season was cancelled. A couple days later, I spoke to former CFL Commissioner Mark Cohan. You
2: know, obviously as a fan, as a former commissioner, i obviously very saddened. uh, But then I put my commissioner hat on and I, I think it was absolutely the right decision. You know, the right decision for the safety of the players, the right decision for, um, you know, the fans wouldn't be in the stands, but for the safety of our fans. Uh, then ultimately, you know, it gives an opportunity for the league to pause, to step back and to really think about the future. I mean, I think the last time a Grey Cup was canceled was 1919 during, during World War One and the Spanish flu. Um, you know, we've been through this before and I think we will overcome. It was interesting today. I I was wearing a CFL T-shirt, and I also went to a Big Ten school. I was wearing the Northwestern Wildcats hat, and I guess it was my day of mourning uh, today, wearing both of those. Right.
1: Well, yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it, for sure. Yeah. A, a lot of a lot of discussion with the, about this maybe being an opportunity. I, I talked to Len Rhodes last night, and he talked about how the NHL came out of 0405 where they lost the whole season, and he said maybe this is a chance for some new ideas and some innovation and some new energy. For the Canadian Football League. I mean, you've been there, you've been behind the scenes and, and with owners and governors. Is there an opportunity here to say, okay, we need to take a deep breath and really re examine? And what would you re examine here if, if, if it was up to you in this situation?
2: Well, I, I think you have to look at it a couple of things. I think you have to look at it and say, you know, there's no guarantee that 2021 that a season's going to start on time. So I think they have to play out a whole bunch of different scenarios. For next year. Um, I think the most important thing they need to do is really sit down with the players and bring them to the table and and talk about what this can mean. So, you know, next year, do you plan for potentially one or two hub cities um, in case, you know, obviously the pandemic goes on and there's not a vaccine yet and people can't gather, which, you know, a lot of the experts are saying it may be, might not be until 2022. So you look at those sort of things. You plan for a regular season uh, as well. But I would sit back and look and say, you know, uh, what are the challenges with our model? Uh, are there new things we can think about? Are there new playoff formats we can think about? Are there new rules we can think about? Um, are there? Uh, do we have the right number of games? I'd look at everything um, and try and put that on the table and say, what do younger fans want today? What didn't we do? And I think this does give you... The league time, you know, we're in the summer right now. This would be the, usually the middle of the season where you can't focus on anything because you're focusing on the Grey Cup. And use that time to strategically think about what you can do. Randy Ambrosi
1: gave an interesting soundbite on Monday, and he said... We may have to run the league differently, and we may need a more cooperative ecosystem. I thought that was a really interesting way to put it. I, I don't want to sensationalize it, but it made me think: Oh, who's not cooperating? It is like, do, do all the franchises gel? Or, or. or the different franchises looking out for the league and each other as well as themselves or, or but how, what would what did that mean to you when Randy said that
2: you know it, it's hard for me to assess that because you know I've been gone for almost five years now but you know I think there's always people at the table uh, that some I, I always loved like the Edmontons and Saskatchewan and the Bombers and some of the teams that were doing financially a little bit better because they had a holistic view of the league and how do we help out um, if you're if your team is under a little bit more stress it can create an environment like what are you doing for me today but I think that comment probably has to do with let's bring the let's bring the 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 owners together let's bring the players together let's bring our sponsors together let's bring our tv partners together let's bring the government together let's bring the owner of the stadiums you know many of those stadiums are government-owned stadiums and i think you have to look at the entire ecosystem what andy what randy is saying uh, and make sure that everyone is you know singing from the same hymn sheet uh, or playing from the same playbook and if you can do that that's where I think they can then start to think about what the future looks like.
1: Yeah. Mark Kohan joining us today Inside Sports, former CFL commissioner, just uh, weighing in on the league not having a, a 2020 season. Uh, I, I'm going to throw a couple other ones here at you. They're, I mean, they're hypothetical, but I, I think at this point we have to kind of discuss everything. Len Rhodes, who you know well, was on the show last night, and he said there are some leagues where there's one ownership group and each franchise kind of operates as, as a shareholder. Is that at all realistic and would it be helpful in the Canadian Football League?
2: You know, I've actually thought of that model, um, you know, and potentially do you bring in a TV partner in that? So if you look look about when Major League Soccer was started, it really was that central structure. There were a few team owners that owned multiple teams at the time, uh, like Phil Anschutz and the Hunts family and things like that. But I think, you know, over time, is that a model that could work? Um, Where you actually create something where you have a central body, um, you have you know executives that run the teams uh, and then you work out an agreement and how tr- players are transferred how players are developed and things like that so i think what what len is basically saying is be creative in thinking about what the model is for the future um and then the question becomes who could do that what type of partners you bring to the table and how does that structure sort of work if you had both community-owned teams now that probably would never want to sell into something or you have an individual who believes my franchise is worth this and maybe it's only worth that so uh, i think there's a lot of uh you know deep thinking that has to go into that but that is is one thing that i think the league could even consider
1: yeah, that's, that one really interests me. Len also brought up something else and boy oh boy Mark, when you host a talk show, you get the immediate feedback from the listeners and, and uh, this one raised some eyebrows and dropped some draws. Uh, dropped some jaws. So Len says the league has to be open to perhaps some sort of uh, affiliation or development model with the National Football League. I don't even know if the NFL is interested in having that sort of relationship with the CFL. Len even said if that happened, he'd Go to four downs and adopt the American rules. So I don't know if your jaw's on the floor now or not. But <laughs> like, is is there is there a realistic relationship with with the juggernaut known as the NFL for the Canadian league?
2: Well, listen, I, I had a good uh, relationship with their commissioner um, when I came in. It was quite interesting. You know, there had been an existing. Uh, formal relationship between the CFL and the NFL, right when I'd come in and it had expired. And the owner said, Go in and renegotiate a new deal. And at the time, I said, I don't think we really need to. You know, we need to just focus on our league, not on the juggernaut, you know, south of the 49th parallel. And that was part of the internal discussion. I will say, when I was involved in building the league, I often felt of myself as sort of Captain Canada and sort of. You got to protect this great canadian institution um i would not be adverse now that's a little bit different than what len is saying where it becomes a development league i don't think that's the right approach but i would think it would be interesting to sit down the nfl is going to go through some major challenges college sports is going through major challenges now on the football side and football for the u.s colleges is 80 percent of their revenue for these universities you know is there Uh, An interesting collaborative way to bring a lot of different parties to think about what is the the right model moving forward. But I will tell you, every other league has failed except, uh, you know, except the NFL and the CFL, you know, XFL, the leagues over time have failed. I think you know it's worth having discussions but I think I personally I, I, I love the three down game and I think that's what makes our product unique and we should continue with that
1: and Mark before I let you go you're the expert on this and, and you always have such great perspective on everything so and, and you're talking to a lot of people in Edmonton and Northern Alberta who love the CFL love the Double E or, or whatever team they want to support so I'll kind of leave it open to you in case I missed anything key or there's just a message you think fans need to
2: hear today you know i think the most important thing for the cfl is people i've been saying is this the death knell of the cfl is the cfl over and you know i sent out a tweet the other day and you know, and i said this is our league you know this league is successful because of the fans this league is successful because of the thousands of listeners that you have who love the double e or love the riders or love the argos or the tiger cats and i think That is why this league will survive. It's because the families that generationally have come back to support it. However, I think the league is at an opportunity now where what do they need to think about that brings in the next generation? What they need to think about in terms of business models and that? And I think anyone who's looking at continuing to invest in the league can feel satisfied because of our fan base. And, you know, as long as our fan base is there, as long as people continue to love this game, I think the the league will be around for another 100 years.
1: That is Mark Cohan, former commissioner of the Canadian Football League. A lot of work to do for them going into 2021. Best of Inside Sports on 630, Chad. Hey, it's the best of Inside Sports on 630, Chad. My name's Reed Wilkins. Thanks for checking us out tonight. Amanda Rummery. First of all, kind of a tough situation for her. She had a couple of modified bikes stolen, uh, but we had her in on Inside Sports to tell her story. She is uh, the top female Paralympic sprinter in the country, and uh, she was telling us about the really difficult decision to have her left arm amputated at the elbow. When I was 18 years old, I was in an ATV accident,
0: and it resulted in a brachial plexus injury, which is complete paralysis in the left arm. So I had no movement or sensation shoulder down. And um, that was my dominant arm at the time. So I did have to adapt quite a bit. Learned how to write and dress myself, feed myself. It was quite a transition. And then um, I started going to rehab at the hospital and had some surgeries at the Royal Alex. And the surgeries were a lot. They were very hard on my body. I was covered in scars. They were doing like muscle and nerve transfer. And after two unsuccessful surgeries, I decided to amputate. So it was on my terms. I was um, very happy to do it i have never regretted my decision going from a paralyzed arm to a cute little nub was the best decision i ever made
1: uh how long ago was this
0: um so original accident was july of 2015 and then i amputated in august of 2018
1: okay well uh, obviously a big decision so how now we will get into your paralympic career. so obviously you're you're an outstanding athlete so I I assume you were uh, a high-level athlete even before the amputation
0: um I actually wasn't so I played recreational basketball never even played for my high school got cut from the team um like from tryouts I never got picked for the high school basketball team and then I did compete in track and field I did like every other kid does in elementary just goes to the mandatory track and field at the end of the school year um, event and then after my accident and I recovered from my injuries I started researching what opportunities were out there for people with a physical disability what para sport was and there was quite a few winter sports in edmonton but i like clubs and i wasn't interested in that and then finally out of the Stedward center in the university of alberta uh there was a track and field para athletic
1: group oh cool okay so was it was it uh, because you mentioned your arm was paralyzed was it uh difficult to run with the paralyzed arm did you have to do anything to sort of like keep it tight to your body how did that all work
0: yeah I did so um, I actually found an amazing company somewhere in Asia I think Singapore they made these um, slings for people with brachial plexus injury and it was an athletic sling so I could even swim in it I ran in it and it was amazing but it was obviously still an inconvenience every time I wanted to take off a layer or uh, putting my number on my bib um, for my like racing attire to go around the sling it was always a little annoying so it was much easier to just amputate for okay. that
1: reason and many others. Right. Okay. Well. So. Well. That's cool. So then you started. Uh, you joined the club and you started sprinting. And when did you start getting really good? And we should mention. And we'll get more to this. I mean, you. You. You would. You would have been going to Tokyo had there been uh, Paralympics. So when did you start to get really, really good, for lack of a better term?
0: Yeah. Um. So I started in September of 2017 with my coach Megan, and it was kind of. In, at the end of that year, so after a full year of training with Megan, um, I had broken the 100-meter record at that time. So um, things were going well. They were definitely snowballing from never running track and then only running track for a year. There is obviously less competition in the para world. There's just less females running out there with one arm. Then there is females with two arms, not to sell myself short, but um, if you are committed with para-athletics and you train and you compete, um, you could make it to the top quicker than you would in able-bodied sport, if that
3: makes sense.
1: Well, still, if, uh, if, if you're the best in the country at something, <laughs> you're one of the tops of the world. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty impressive. So what, what, uh, how did everything with uh, the pandemic and the pause and the Paralympic postponement, how did that affect your training cycle?
0: So it obviously postponed Tokyo 2020, um, which was very upsetting at first, but at the same time, it was actually a relief because all of my competitions in the spring and summer had been canceled. So I was getting very anxious of how I would even qualify for Tokyo and not being able to compete. I didn't know where I was at and my training was also being affected. It was harder to get like weight room access and it was cold in Edmonton uh, pretty late in the spring so i wasn't able to get on a track right away so my training was definitely negatively affected and so with the tokyo postponement um there was a bit of relief to be honest and now as it gets closer to like what would now be tokyo 2021 um i'm just hoping that that will happen because they said that they would not postpone the games again, they would just straight out cancel them, because then you're going into 2022, which would be the Winter Olympics year so obviously if the games actually gets cancelled, I'd be completely devastated I've been training full time for a few years now, and fully devoting myself, so it would be very heartbreaking, but um, I think in life, sometimes there's things that are bigger than sport, and right now with COVID, um, it just would have been way too big of a risk to hold the games at the olympic village
1: amanda rumery joining us tonight on uh, inside sports edmonton paralympian she's telling you uh, a little bit about her journey over the last few years amanda you sound like a very uh, upbeat and energetic person what can you tell me about the, the mental side of, of dealing with, uh, with an injury and then ultimately having, having to make a decision about having your arm amputated? You're speaking about it very matter-of-factly and very logically, and, and you're, I can tell you're obviously passionate about your, your sprinting career. Um, like, Have you been that good at handling everything this whole time, or how has that side of it been?
0: To be honest, um, I, I have been pretty positive through it all. I was raised that it is what it is, you can't change the past, um, kind of tough love. So when my accident happened, I was continually told by the surgeons and the doctors that I would regain mobility and sensation in my arm and hand. So when that wasn't the case and my surgeries were unsuccessful, of course that was upsetting. But um, I knew that everything happens for a reason and that I was chosen to go through my accident and there was like two friends were on the quad with me and I, um, I was the one driving. So I'm very thankful that the paralyzed arm uh, happened to me instead of them. But at the same time, I look around sometimes at uh, people And I'm glad that this happened to me instead of them just because I've made the most of it. And I'm very thankful to have found track. And I always look forward to going to practice and to competing. And it's really given me a purpose and something to work towards and created my dream of representing Canada at Tokyo 2020.
1: Well, I I, got to say, and I mentioned, um, you know, when I started reading about your store today, I I first looked at your Instagram account and and I noticed your bio and I read that off the top of the show and I thought, well, you (laughs) must have a sense of humor. Then I noticed... um, when you marked the uh, 1 year anniversary of the amputation on instagram you wrote happy birthday nub so i thought okay this young lady has uh, has an interesting <laughs> yeah. approach there there's there's you, you, it seems like you're not the type of person you, you don't talk about what you you can't do you talk about what you can do and what you're going to do
0: yeah absolutely i yes and i do treat my nub kind of like a real human i've named it all my friends family address it by nub um we did celebrate its second birthday this past august um but yeah i definitely mo- make the most of every situation and i'm very thankful that track has brought amazing opportunities my way i was able to make my international debut in lima peru last august at the parapan american games and then again at the 2019 World Para Athletic Championships in Dubai so seeing places like Peru and Dubai is absolutely amazing so yeah I'm thankful for everything that's come my way because of this
1: okay and are you the Canadian champion the 100 the 200 and the 400 or what's the latest I I am yes awesome okay
0: 400 is my favorite event though it's uh, my highest world ranking. So in para-athletics, you usually look more so at your world ranking. So I was about 12th in the world in the 400 meter.
1: Uh, Amanda, I, I don't know if you ever listen to the show, but uh, it, you're quite a bit younger than me. Do you, do you Have you heard of a band called Def Leppard?
0: Yes, of course.
1: Okay, so the their drama, drummer... The drummer doesn't have a, a left arm, uh, and and when and somebody texted this in to remind me, Dave, who's a big Def Leppard fan as, as well, and Rick Allen's the drummer's name, and he said after his injury and amputation, he had to relearn how to balance. Did you have any of that sensation?
0: Um, relearning how to balance, I I don't remember. I don't think so. I've always been a huge yogi, so I go to yoga like three to four times a week, and I find my balance is quite good okay and i kind of right. yeah because i never i don't have nerves in my left side now because of how the accident happened i had complete root avulsion, so i've been very fortunate to never experience phantom limb pain i did initially at the accident for a few months post but i do not have a chronic phantom limb pain like most amputees do so maybe balance would have something to do with the nerves i'm not sure
1: Man, real inspiration. That is Amanda Rummery, and this is the best of Inside Sports on 630 Chad.
2: 630 Chad, Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins, weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad.